Ron DeSantis. Is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war in soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars in debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back in Snap Hook listeners. What a week it has been. Tim Costello, as always, joined with the ever-vescent Scott Barzilla. Scott, how are we doing? We are doing great. This has been a good week so far, uh, at least, you know, for Monday as we record this and Wednesday as you listen to it. You know, Scott, last week, I uh, I don't know if I, I mentioned or not, but um, I played in, in my first ever golf league on uh, on Thursday night. And I and I have to say, you know, I I would consider the night a disappointment. Um, I, I was hoping I was going in really hoping to win. Uh, came in like 10th place out of 48 people. Um, but the guy, the guy who ends up winning it, and this, this is what drives me crazy with these leagues. It's a nine hole league. Um, and my, my partner registered me as a, a three handicap at this course, which I, I think I'll play below, but I, I played terrible and I shot 40 on nine holes. And so on this handicap system, I shot one over. Um, some guy who's risked as a 12 handicap on nine holes, um, shoots seven under in this handicap system. And it's just, it's, it's just ridiculous. Like how, in what world do you look yourself in the mirror at night and go home after that and, and feel good about yourself in any way? Oh, I, I always played in the MGA events when I was a member at, at Outshore Harbor. And there's just so many sandbaggers. It's just, it's just crazy. And you you watch them. You play with them on a regular basis. You know when they're not in the tournament, and they're like, you know, they're saying, "Oh, I'm gonna take a triple there." And it's like, "No, you had a bogey, dude. What are you doing?" And it's like, "Well, I gotta raise my handicaps." And it's like, "Come on." Yeah, I mean, I the way I was at it, it's like a zero to three, uh, four to eight, you know, eight to twelve or whatever it is. So you get the max out of that. So maybe he's an eight. Because it gave me three strokes on the first day, and then it, it normalizes after that. But I don't know about you, Scott. But other than that, it was a great week. I just I just wanted to get that out there for the listeners. We have a Snap Hook podcast. You know, I am out there playing golf. Um, 
and I, I didn't represent the brand well. I didn't. You know, I, I'm hoping now that I next week I get four strokes on nine holes next week uh, on a short gettable course where I I hit it. I hit the driver worse than I've ever hit it in my life, Scott, and still shot four over. So um, I, I feel like I feel like I'm going to go out and play well this week. But just want to you know keep the people informed how life's going. Then again, yeah, I've played you know nine holes. Anything can happen in nine holes. I mean, I yeah. think I shot a, a 34 once in, in nine holes. Um, and I, and I, the best round I ever shot was a 73. So, you know, things happen, you know, this weird That's stuff. That's the thing. Like, it, the, the mentality is different on nine than it was on 18 because you don't have to – I feel like you don't have to carry it. Okay, now let's go out of the back nine and playing well. Like – I'm going out. It's a Thursday night league. I'm firing at pins. They have us playing. The, all the men play from the white tees. We're like, it's it's literally like 3,000 yards, if that. Um, there were like four holes that were like less than 320 from, from the tees we were playing from. So um, I didn't bring it at the level I should have, but I'm letting the listeners know um, it will be it will be brought home next week, and it will be legitimate, not like the other guys that are out there sandbagging it. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, but you say play for the whites. I, I'll I'll shave my legs and play for the reds. You know, <laughs> if you can let me have the opportunity, I just I can't hit it as far as I used to. But that but that brings the question: Why don't you? You know, this is something like I have been harping on my father is he should stop playing from the whites and he should play from the golds. Like at my course, they have red and gold, which are like reds five feet in front of the golds and most holes. There's a couple that are different, and then they have the whites a lot further back. Like. There's no, my dad has no business playing from the whites anymore. Oh. As do most golfers. Like, move it up one more tee. There's no shame. You're out there to have a oh. good time. Oh, the, the, whatever the forward most male tees are, that's where I'm playing. Yeah. And, uh, my dad is at an age actually where he can play from the Reds, uh, legally because he's, he's almost 80. So, you know, just getting them out there is just a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, more golfers should play for the amount of people who play from the back tees at the course I'm a member of. Um, and have no business doing it is is ridiculous. But, oh, those people drive me nuts. And you get caught behind them, and they're like, you know, they're two seventy out, you know, and they're waiting for the green to clear. And it's like, come on, dude, when's the last time you hit a two hundred seventy yard three wood? It's yeah, it's it's rare. It's it's it, it's my pet peeve. It kills me. And most times, I am in range of hitting them off the tee. And I have to wait, and I and I know it's gonna mess me up. And I try and get myself to reset, and then when I reset, it just it just doesn't go well, and I don't hit my normal drive that I'd like to hit. But Scott, there's nothing worse than the vanity handicap, right? I think we can all agree. You know, we were talking about that earlier. There's nothing worse than the guy who inflates their handicap or inflates their golf game into something that it's not. It, it's absolutely terrible. And I think that's a great comparison to what we're going to be talking about, not just this week and next, because we're going to be talking about vaccine hesitancy or the anti-vax movement. And I think there's a lot of people out there um, on social media, on, on TikTok, on Instagram especially, that are promoting things to be true in, in terms of what are medical or what are good health alternatives that are not the case, you know, much like the gentleman who claimed to be a 12 handicap and won the league this last week, 
um, and he's, I guarantee you, not a 12 handicap on nine holes, there are people out there who are trying to tell you that uh, taking a coffee enema three times a week will create good gut digestive health. And the people who are telling you that are claiming to be doctors, just like this gentleman is claiming to be a 12 handicap. But in actuality, they're not. And so Scott and I have the wonderful opportunity. We're going to bring a great guest to you next week uh, to talk about some of the amazing technology that's involved in, in making these vaccines. But, but this week, um, we want to talk a little bit more about the history of, of not only just vaccines, but vaccine mandates, because it, it really is something that it has a history and a root in America since our very beginning. And let me, and, and I'm going to tell a little story here that's kind of uh, tangentially related to this. And, uh, and one of the things we mentioned last week, if y'all go back and listen to our last week uh, episode, uh, where we talked about uh, HISD, and we, we promised, you know, what we would do is we would talk about things we know about, and that uh, we would, you know, be truthful and honest. Well, so uh, this last week, one of the funny things that I, I do as a part of my job, uh, I am what you call a support facilitator. So I go into other teachers' classrooms. Sometimes I might pull, pull kids into a small group. Sometimes I might work with them one-on-one. -on -one. And so in this case, I am reading a biology test to this student. And I swear to God, I read the whole test. They are all English words. And individually, they made sense. And he put it together. And I had no idea what I was reading. This is biology. I mean, I haven't taken a biology class since college, which, you know, has been in a hot minute. And so one of the things I discovered is like, you know, I am not the person who should be talking biology. That's, that's basically, you know, what I'm coming to you with this. Uh, and I think the, the most important thing for people to realize is that there are things that we know, there are things we don't know. And we need to be honest about the things that we don't know. And there's, and, and I think one of the things that Tim was kind of alluding to here just a second ago is that there are so many people who are like, well, I saw a YouTube video on this. And it's like, okay, that's, that's fantastic. Good for you. Uh, but, you know, what qualifies you to talk, you know, quasi-intelligently and, and I'm not you know I'm just going to come right out and say I'm not the person I can talk to you about history a great deal I and mean, we're going to talk about some history in this episode but I am not going to be the person who comes to you and, and tries to convince you why vaccines are safe or not safe you know and, and from a scientific point of view because I just don't have it uh, that's not my wheelhouse uh, I don't know about you Tim but uh, I struggled when I was taking biology in college I can honestly say I never took like a, a, a science class in college that involved a lab. I had astronomy or astrology, whichever one doesn't involve the stuff in the newspaper. I can't remember off the top of my head. Astronomy is the one with stars, yeah. Okay. And that actually was one of the most interesting college classes I ever took. It was at UH, and my professor worked for NASA, and literally with his laptop logged onto the projector screen logged onto the mars rover and goes who wants to see what's happening on mars today and logged onto the mars rover um but no other than that scott long story short i don't uh i don't have biology experience i struggled to get my my like 91 in ap bio in high school but other than that 
and I and I mean struggled, but I I got it done. Yeah, you did more than me. I did not do AP Bio. Uh, I, I was a regular biology student, so. I, I, mean, uh, I might be pre-AP. Let me preface. Like, whatever one you took in ninth grade. Like, I didn't take beyond the required. I just took the regular advanced pre-AP, whatever it was, biology. So, you know, kind of what we... So, we're talking about the anti-vax movement. One of the things we mentioned last week uh, was that, you know, we wanted to get off this thing where every issue has to be framed left versus right. Because this, you know, this anti-vax thing is definitely not that. Uh, there are people on, you know, anywhere on the political spectrum who find themselves being anti-vax. And, and we, as we go through the timeline, I mean, you're going to find, you know, at different points in history, different groups of people who are anti-vax, but also uh, certain groups have a very real concern and a very right to be hesitant. Uh, based on stuff that's happened to them in the past. And so uh, I guess we'll, we'll just open it up and, and talk about, you know, there's there's also the, you know, the history of vaccines, but then there's also the history of vaccine mandates. And so we're going to kind of hit both of those. Uh, and before we get the ball rolling, I'll throw it back to Tim, see if he has any additional thoughts before we, uh, before we open, you know, put the ball in the tee and, and hit the driver off the off the deck here. Yeah, just before we really jump into it too, I want to I want to reiterate kind of what Scott said. Where when you look at there, there are certain you know news personalities or certain podcast hosts or or certain media people who will take very small pieces of this history and they will present it in a way that while it may textually be true. It is completely void of, you know, the perception of reality of what actually happened in the moment. Right? Well, we're the, the history of vaccines and vaccine mandates specifically in the United States is is some muddy water and it is tricky. And, you know, before we really understood what good medical science was, some of these people did, in fact, have some some great arguments to be made. So when you see some famous names that pop up during the, you know, a, a, a you know, a famous abolitionist, a John Douglas, or you know, someone like that who um, was a famous abolitionist, or someone you knew regularly in in the feminist movement, to see that they're anti-vax, oh, that's disappointing. It's you know sometimes it's without the. Um, you know, nuance of, of history, right? We're looking at everything in a vacuum where we have good vaccines. Well, um, you know, some of these mandates, you know, did save lives. Um, they were harsh and they, they impacted different sects of the population in America specifically very differently. And so, you know, you can't just look at, at some of these histories in just a vacuum without the as I said, the nuance of where they were in that time and try and place the, those things on today's time period. Because, you know, as we're going to learn in part two of this episode, we're not getting a, a someone to scrape our, our arm with mixed up smallpox scabs and a powder to, to get us a light infection instead of the real thing. You know, we've come a long way from that. So times have changed a little bit in how we inoculate and how we vac- give people vaccines 
So, you know, while there is some history of vaccine hesitancy, it shouldn't necessarily be applied thought process wise um, to, to what goes on with, with today's medical science. Right. And so the very first, uh, if we're going to stick with U.S. history here, because I think, you know, we could go back to you know, the 1400s, you know, that people supposedly, you know, were kind of starting vaccines back then, but, you know, very rudimentary and, and obviously they didn't work. And, and listen very carefully to the timeline I'm going to give you here, because the very first time in America we see a vaccine mandate really is George Washington, the Continental Army in 1777. And so what's funny about that is, is that, you know, whenever you're looking at any individual situation, you got to look at, okay, you know, what are the risk of the vaccine? What are the risk of not getting the vaccine? You kind of have to weigh that back and forth. And, and that's what I think every family you know, has to do. More people in the army were dying of smallpox than actually dying, you know, from battle in the Revolutionary War at that time. And so in 1777, George Washington, you know, mandates that everybody in the army needs to get inoculated to smallpox. The very first successful smallpox vaccine comes in 1798. So if you're doing the math there, you know, we see a separation of 21 years between when somebody requires it and when we know it actually works. So, and then, and of course, we have some, you know, we, we have a whole history of mandates that we, um, just like, you know, the scientific community did, you know, if everybody's immediately thinking of the COVID vaccine, you know, the, vac uh, the way that, you know, scientists did this back in the day, it's pretty much the same. I and mean, we were starting off with adults and then we're slowly moving it to children, you know, when we figure out they can be safe. So children weren't really mandated until um, I think Boston was the first, um, the first place in the United States to require that uh, school children get the vaccine. And that was in, I think 1855. So, I mean, we're, we're talking like, you know, a span of 50 plus years between when we have a successful smallpox vaccine and when we're requiring children. And there were people fighting it all the way along the way. There were uh, Supreme Court cases, you know, up and through the early part of the 20th century saying, you know, we shouldn't be mandating this stuff. You know, you shouldn't be forcing this on people. So, you know, this was you know, this was a pretty big fight. I mean, you're, you're looking at the difference of over a century where we have our first successful vaccine and then, you know, over a hundred years later, people still fighting this. So, you know, the fact that there's vaccine hesitancy shouldn't really be a surprise. It should, it shouldn't, I think it's, it's at that time it's, it shouldn't, right? There's, the, the public good obviously was was there, but I think you know even even at that level of vaccination with what they were doing, right? A, a doctor would come in and he would basically scrape your arm and and rub it, a, a, uh, you know, a swab essentially across the the open wound uh, of ground up. Um, it was cow um, pox essentially is what it was, right? Because they they found out that people who were Working around dairy, you know, dairy milk farmers uh, would get cowpox, which was a much less version of 
the pox family, similar to a chicken pox, but you get these large pustules on your hand. And it was obvious, and the, and the dairy milkers would say, hey, yeah, it stinks, but, you know, at least I don't get smallpox, right? So, uh, and then they made, they were able to make a vaccine out of that. But even still, uh, you know, like, let's say it was three out of a hundred people would die was the percentage rate of that with that vaccination. So even at that point, there was, there was quite a bit, of he- quite a bit of hesitancy, at a 97% survival rate, right? And that's what people freaking out about COVID, right? Oh, it was 97% survival. Well, you know, now you really got to get a shot in your body. That's 97% survival. Were you ready to do it? Um, and, and there was quite a bit of the community that wasn't. And at that time period, uh, especially in outbreak times, and again, the United States at that time, you know, the Supreme Court upheld the ruling up through like 1905, I believe was the ruling mm-hmm. um, yep. that you could mandate vaccination during times of an outbreak. And so anytime there was an outbreak, they would come in. They had like the vaccination squad or the vaccination police. And if they would determine, hey, if this house could be fumigated after a, a, a death in the family from the disease, if it couldn't, they were burning it down. They would literally um, it hold you at gunpoint and say vaccination or you're getting arrested. Those who chose arrested because they thought they were standing up, you know, as soon as you get to jail, you're vaccinated because the moment any prisoner gets in jail by mandate, they are vaccinated as a prisoner in the jail. So it really wasn't even worth it to do that. So literally they are vaccinating everybody. So if you're seeing this and you're seeing and you're, you know, a, a libertarian by today's standards, right? Or if you're someone who doesn't like the government involved in your day to day life, even though there is the public utility of it, of 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 the public good, there is going to be the hesitancy of literally like some sect of the military showing up at your door, kicking it in and, and giving you the shot. Well, so let me tell you a, kind of an offshoot story. And I don't know if you're familiar with this story. And I know many of our listeners won't be. Um, but have, have you heard of a woman named Henrietta Lacks? I have actually. Yes. So, you know, since Tim has heard of her, I'll, I'll just, you know, for the whole audience in because, you know, one of the biggest groups that we see um, are various minority groups are hesitant of vaccines. And, and for a very good reason, because what happened with Henrietta Lacks is that she went to the Mayo Clinic uh, in the early 1950s. Uh, she was an African-American woman. She was in her early 30s, I believe. And she had cervical cancer. Of course, I don't think they knew that going in. And so when they went into the hospital, uh, they, you know, they were studying her. Nobody was telling her or the family anything. And then they went in they said, hey, you know, do we have permission to, you know, take some of her cells? The Lax family says, no. And they do it anyway. And what's, uh, what's remarkable about her is that her cells are still living. She died in the 1950s. I mean, shortly after going into the Mayo Clinic, but her cells are still living. They, they grew her cells in space. They've used, I mean, different pharmaceutical companies have used her cells, you know, to study, you know, different things and, and made fantastic advancements about it. But what ended up happening was her family ended up having to sue, um, at least, you know, one of the pharmaceutical companies in order to get, you know, what they felt was their fair share because, you know, they felt like they should get at least a cut of the pie because it was, you know, 
it was her cells, right? And and so you you hear all kinds of and there's all kinds of stories we could go you know off the deep end here about how um, you know particularly in Nazi Germany, but you know, but even here in the United States, where you know some very horrible scientific experiments were done uh, on an unknowing population, and you're going to tell me now that they don't trust the, the scientific and, and uh, you know medical community. It's like no shit. Yeah, yeah, they're not going to trust them, and so yeah. The, starting in 1932 in Tuskegee, Tuskegee, Alabama, um, when they began the syphilis study down there, that literally went on uh, into like the 70s, so 40 years of un, untreated syphilis. They could study what syphilis does to people in a group of of African American men. That's just you know, there's. Certain groups of the population were right to feel like they were being attacked because it was it was certain groups of the population, right? When there's an outbreak in certain cities, you know who's they're not kicking in the doors of the rich. Like even, you know, after like the eighteen into the eighteen hundreds, like there was a because of the level of vaccination for smallpox, it was there was a less deadly version that that ravaged through America and it would hit, it would, it would hit different towns and it would, it would hit, it would really do damage, but it, it had a higher um, rate of people living, right? It wasn't as deadly. And so it really became a racial divide in this country. There were quite a few slurs attached to the word itch uh, that went with what happened with this lesser version of smallpox. And because it was because there was so much hesitancy um, in certain little parts of the South. And, um, you know, again, that goes back to uh, you've seen bad results. I mean, General Lee had 5,000 troops who he thought he was inoculating against smallpox. And instead, they got ground up syphilis in their, um, in their open wound. And now you had 5,000 Confederates who couldn't fight because they all had syphilis. So certain parts of the South refused to take the vaccine because that's what they had seen. So uh, when it was going through that area, you would uh, through America, because there were certain little towns in the South that didn't vaccinate syphilis. I mean, um, smallpox changed and as viruses do, they mutate. And so you, when you don't completely kill a virus out, like we've done with COVID right now, how we've had these different variants that come through, viruses change. And if there's a lower one that can continue to stay around and people become less scared about it, and they're not as worried about it, that means the virus can and will mutate again later on. And that's what happened with smallpox in the United States until it roars up again like it did in Boston in 1855. Yeah, and I think... I think, you know, one of the things we were talking about last week, and this hit me, you know, when thinking about this issue is we, we talked about the whole idea of banks and we talked about like the fact that my grandmother, you know, had money in six different banks and how, you know, y'all's generation doesn't do that. And I think what's similar now is we fast forward to today. And I think what's happened is, is that people have not had to deal with these things. And so, you know, if you don't remember them, you know, because, you know, the vaccine, I think the, the history of vaccines, we, we kind of hit a, a huge fast forward when we get to Jonas Salk in the 1950s, who comes up with the polio vaccine. 
And that's when things really start ramping up and we really start, you know, that's when we end up developing our MMR. So bumps, measles, rubella. Um, and I think there, you know, there's even a chicken pox vaccine, you know, now that, uh, if you wanted to do that, but there's also meningitis like they're requiring. And so what's happened is, is that people of this, of this generation, so my generation and younger, we didn't know anybody who had polio. Nobody had polio. Uh, we didn't, you know, I don't think we had, I did have the chicken pox when I was growing up, but, um, you know, we, we had the MMR vaccine, so we didn't know anybody with measles. We didn't know, you know, what happened there. And so, and what happens with these diseases is unlike smallpox, you don't literally die from the measles usually. You don't literally die from polio. It just cripples you. And, you know, there's lots of people, you know, I think my father growing up, he, um, he has heart trouble now. And a lot of that could be traced back to a, a specific uh, strand of pneumonia that he had when he was like four or five years old. These are things that don't happen to people now. And so if you don't see it, then you don't necessarily see the need for it. And that's, I think, where things are different now than the way they were in the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. I mean, my, my great-grandmother had 17 children, but only 11 survived to adulthood. And that was fairly common. I mean, 17 is not common. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, outrageous. But um, that kind of a ratio is, was not uncommon, you know, 100 years ago to see that happen. Um, whereas today, you know, it's rare to have a child die, you know, from a preventable disease. So, you know, the, it, when people don't necessarily see the need. And that's, you know, where we're going to talk to our expert next week, you know, and, you know She's going to give us a little bit some more facts on, you know, when does a, a population become inoculated, what percentage, and, you know, and, and does that change from, you know, one disease to another, or, you know. But that's, I think, the biggest thing now is if you look at is what's going on now, nobody has experience with these diseases. I mean, you see the plague pop up every once in a while, and we're like, oh, my God, what do we do? Hey, I think. And here, too, is a good point. I want to make sure we go now, continue on the history of the vaccine, right? Because I think right. we want to make sure we, we differentiate the the pardon me, ah, the difference of the mandate and the vaccine. So you mentioned a good point with, with, the, with the polio vaccine um, and, and where things have grown, right? So starting in, when we look at the history of vaccination, starting in 1796, you had Dr. Jenner, um, who created the, the smallpox vaccine from, from a cowpox postule. Uh, then in 1890, 1881, Louis Pasteur um, creates his first vaccine, which was against anthrax. Then in 1885, he creates another one against rabies. Uh, in 1914, there's a, a, a vaccine for pertussis, whooping cough, uh, pertussis or whooping cough, pardon me, uh, 1926, diphtheria, 1938, tetanus, 1948, pertussis, diphtheria, and tetanus are combined and given as the DP, DTP vaccination for the first time. And these are, and it's important to know that we're giving these one, one shot for several things at once, because that's going to become important down the line in some of this history of vaccine uh, and the anti-vaccine is some of the ones that are seen as issues in the anti-vax movement. Um, 
but in 1955, and this was the one that you mentioned, uh, Jonas Salk develops the polio vaccine based on based on a dead polio virus. And then after that, you really see the ability to almost, um, as you see, wipe out diseases, right? Like when's the last time you've seen someone with polio? Um, well, up until Portland in 2019, you didn't really see measles anywhere, but that came back for a little bit. But that was created in 1963, 1967 mumps, 1969 rubella, 1977. So here's the crazy part, Scott, when you talk about vaccine hesitancy. Oh, I can't say the word. Vaccine hesitancy. It took from 1796 all the way to 1977 to eradicate smallpox on the um, on the planet. It took 200 years of having the cure. Um, to be able to rid the earth of it because of people saying no thank you um, you know we've also part of it the, de- the delivery and technology to get it there it took some time for us to be able to to get that vaccine to enough people to create herd immunity right but still it took 200 years to wipe the earth out of that disease once we created the vaccine uh, 1981 hepatitis b developed 96 as you said chickenpox vaccine 99, rotavirus vaccine, 2000, hepatitis, 2000, polio vaccine is no longer recommended because of the vaccine success. Uh, 2001, uh, pneumococcal vaccine is developed. So as of 2020, the recommended vaccination lift is diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, which which is given as the, uh, the DTAP, then you got measles, mumps, rubella, given as your given as your MMR. Then polio, HIV, hepatitis B, HPV, varicella, hepatitis A, pneumococcal, influenza, rotavirus, meningococcal, ACWI, and then meningococcal B. Uh, those are, as of 2020, the recommended uh, vaccines. Plus, obviously, the the coronavirus vaccines. Yeah, and I know I was just talking to a student today that she's going, um, said she was scheduled to get a meningitis vaccine. And so that's, you know, one that's is getting thrown in there. I think it's after high school, but, you know, that if you're going into college, one of those things that they're requiring. And, and I remember this vividly. So back when, uh, when our daughter was born, and I know, you know, Tim, you're going to go through this. So just to give you a fair warning, um, uh, my wife was in graduate school. And I was teaching at a Catholic school. So we had crappy health insurance. And so we had to take our daughter to a clinic in Laporte to get her vaccines. Because basically there, uh, it was a clinic where if you were, as what they called us, underinsured or not insured at all, you could pay. Basically, it was just like you pay us whatever you want to pay us. So, you know, we pay five, ten dollars for a vaccine. And I remember we were holding our daughter. She's you know, was a fairly happy child. And all of a sudden you see the needle get stuck into her. And face just kind of freezes for a second, and you're bracing for it about five seconds, she just starts wailing. I mean, and it's like almost to the point where you're looking around making sure nobody is looking at you because they you know they think you're beating your child. And so, you know, nobody wants their child to go through that much pain. Um, and 
but you know, you kind of, you, fortunately you realize that if you skip out on this, possibilities are that, you know, things could be a whole lot worse. And so, yeah, I know you haven't seen that yet, but you will see that you will go through that. And it's, you know, I don't know if I would call it scary, but it's, you know, anytime you see your child just, you know, completely break down like that, it's, you know, it, it, it tugs at your heartstrings. Definitely. I, I do know from stepdad experience, I'm going to leave the room during shots. Kind of dad. I'm uh that's a, that's mommy daughter time when shots happen. And, and I stand outside cause I don't want to see her cry quite frankly. Um, so I, I do know that I'm, I'm out on that, Scott. Yeah, we're past, we're, we're past that point now, fortunately, our daughter's 16. So, you know, she can take shots without, uh, without crying and, you know, we've had all the COVID shots. And so, you know, it, the, the whole idea of the, the hesitancy, it makes a lot of sense. So what happens now where, where we are in schools and where we are in schools, you know, post Jonas Salk is basically you have two legitimate reasons why you can have your child unvaccinated in school. Number one, if your child has an allergy uh, to a vaccine, it happens. Uh, And it's, you know, it's scary business for those people who who have those. Um, We actually had a cat that was uh, physically challenged. Uh, she had one paw or where one of her back paws didn't work. And we noticed that every time she would get uh, her rabies shot, she couldn't walk for like a solid month. She was just, you know, and so finally we went to the vet and it was like, we can't do this, you know? And then, so they gave her an exemption. Uh, she didn't have to get the shot anymore. Uh, and so if you're honestly one of those people who will get sick with the vaccine, then you don't have to take it. Now, here's where the other one throws in. What they call it is if you have a moral objection is what they is how they label it. Because it re- really it is a religious exemption, but they, they want to kind of not throw that title on there. But, you know, mainly we're talking about like Christian scientists who don't, you know, believe in you know any kind of really health care and things like that. Um, Something called cosmetologists were also originally included in that moral exemption i don't know what cosmetologists are but they were for some reason singled out and noted we teach cosmetology in our school well, i guess i'll have to ask them i don't i works. don't know i i, I <laughs> feel like it's something about the cosmos but i don't know uh well and see so, but here's but in what parents need to do they have to read the fine print and and let me tell you uh one school district i won't name them because, you know, um, you know, we may have listeners who work there. Uh, back when it was the TOS test, so this is years ago, uh, they figured out, because there's small print, that if there's a breakout or a threat of a breakout, that if you are unvaccinated, you cannot come to school if you're unvaccinated. So what this d- district figured out is, geez, the people who are unvaccinated are the same people that usually fail this toss test. So what were to happen if we were just to say, we think there's a breakout on the week of the test and all oh, well, those students couldn't come to school. I'm sorry. You can't count. You're describing the, the great turnaround by George W. Bush. 
Well, it's a specific district here in Texas. Again, I'm not, um, you know, HISD was kind of famous for some of the schools giving away the green M&Ms and the, and the red M&Ms, you know, green for the right answer, red for the wrong answer. Um, so, it, but, you know, they, and, and what was funny is, is that everybody was looking at, in fact, you know, when I was first started teaching Pasadena, we were looking at this district as a model for how did you get your scores so high? Well, <laughs> they were kind of fudgy. But what is serious, though, is that because we've seen some measles outbreaks, you know, Tim mentioned one in Oregon. I think there was one in California as well. If there's an outbreak, you know, in your community and you're unvaccinated, school's going to send you home. And the thing is, is that if my child were, you know, one of those who couldn't be vaccinated because they were, you know, too sick to, I wouldn't want to take them to school anyway. I'd want to keep them at home. But that's where, you know, the latest round of fighting has come, is that people don't want to accept that we're allowing people not to do it. So we're not forcing them, like Tim was describing earlier, where heads I win, tails you lose. But we're saying that, there, you know, you can say no, but with certain conditions. And now people don't want to go through those certain conditions. One real quick, too, I wanted to talk about um, some of those historical movements that were involved in this this vaccine hesitancy, too, Scott, right? There's been... Mm-hmm. Because we, as we said, we want to make sure we differentiate the history of the vaccine and the vaccine movement. Because as you, there, there's such a distinction in, in where science took off in America that it, it it's frustrating to to look at some of this history, right? And and almost at times agree with these people, but it's 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 you're right. I mean, t- some people take advantage of it. Some people know how to bend the rules. It's 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 frustrating. I I mean, there really is no other way to look at this and and come up with a, you know, I, I was looking at through your show notes just there of 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 some of the things, right? And it's is it political, you know, conservative versus liberal stuff like that, and it's when you look at some of the history of it, it really isn't political as much as it's it's racial, and it's. It's financial, you know, it's the rich versus the poor. It's the white, white versus black, much like everything else in America. Like they even turned vaccination into something of, you know, we don't have to worry about getting vaccinated because that's, you know, that happens to the poor black community. That's not going to happen to us. And it's, it's scary when you look at what happened with COVID, you know, that some of those people stop process. I don't have to worry about getting vaccinated. I'm, you know, I, I don't go out. I don't do anything. I'm good. I'm fine. Um, it's, it's such a personal thought process. There's the, uh, the point to me, the point of herd immunity and all those other things with schooling, right? When you talk about why those, why those people can even have that choice to not vaccinate their kids is because of herd immunity. It means enough other people vaccinated their children that those kids have that opportunity. So, you know, to, to get there is it involves some sort of utilitarian or egalitarian greater good thought process right and when everybody thinks about themselves personally instead of the greater good 
we get away from that. And it's it's hard to look at some of this this history of it without um you know without trying to compare it to today but it's it's just not the same you know we'll we'll learn more about the science of why to on our next episode with um our next uh tuesday episode i'm sorry wednesday episode but it's just it's it's an interesting look at you know where science took off and and where vaccine hesitancy went away really right you don't really have much of an anti-vax movement after the polio vaccine comes out Pretty much everything goes away till Dr. Wakefield later on. And so it's just really the rise of the Internet is something that we can get on, get into as well here as social media and stuff like that has taken a lot of quack people to new heights. And it has really given platform to the anti-vaccine movement. But, you know, the history of it, when you look at some of the individual events, um, it's makes sense isn't the right word but you can see where they're coming from you can see where certain people were thinking you know if you and a part of it is grief scott you know when you lose someone when you lose a child eight months after they got the vaccine you know two smallpox you know something like that then you blame the vaccine the odds are it wasn't the vaccine eight months later but you lost a child and now because you had to get this crazy ridiculous vaccine in 1800 when who knows what doctors were giving out? Now you start a movement, which is literally what happened. I mean, there. It's it's a, a crazy long history, you know. But much like everything else in America, as I said, it, it falls along racial and it falls along economic lines. Yeah, uh, really, we could do. I mean, you could do a deep dive into not only you know vaccine and vaccine hesitancy, but you can talk about just you know science and health and uh, just in general. Um, so the, the biggest pandemic in U S history up until COVID, uh, was the Spanish flu, um, that, that killed more people, um, killed more than a million people, uh, in the earliest part of the 20th century. And, and this is what was so insidious about it, right? Most of the time you, you think of, and, and the same thing with COVID, you know, you, they call it comorbidities. So. I don't have just COVID. I have another underlying health condition, which causes me not to deal well with COVID. Well, the Spanish flu was very different. My great-grandmother took in her brother, who was, you know, was a drunk, and, you know, a jackass, and he was sickly, and he had the Spanish flu. He lives. My great-grandmother, who was healthy, she catches it. She dies. And that's what happened with the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu attacked the healthy. I mean, we could fast forward to the 1980s. And the biggest, you know, the big, biggest academic in the United States at the time, you know, was AIDS. And what was said about AIDS and what, you know, what people thought about AIDS, you know, in addition to, you know, having all this, you know, the, just the, the stupid, you know, stupidity over how you actually caught AIDS. That you know, people didn't understand at the time. They thought it was a homosexual disease. So, what did we do about it? Well, we really didn't, you know, get out in front of it. I mean, we have now. That's one of the most remarkable things about you know medical science is that you know AIDS isn't a death sentence anymore. You know, you know people have literally Magic Johnson's had it since 1992, uh, and that's you know more than 30 years ago. But you know the 
the problem is, is that, you know, we have so much, and, and this is kind of one of the, the overarching points that mentioned in here is, uh, you know, disbelieving experts. Uh, you mentioned Andrew Wakefield. I am not going to call him Dr. Wakefield because he is no longer a doc. Uh, what happened with Andrew Wakefield, and, you know, our, our guest next week can go into a lot more details. He published in a uh, scholarly journal called The Landsat. Uh, and he said that there was a link between the vaccines and autism. And what's fascinating to me is how he was proven wrong. The Lancet came out and printed a retraction. His medical license was pulled because not only was he wrong, but he was found to have falsified his results. And so he, I, you know, and I don't know, I guess you'd have to... Um, hook him up to a lie detector test to see if he really believed it or if he was just trying to, you know, get his name in and, and, and become famous. I don't know. But what's fascinating is people still believe that people still hold on to that. I just want to hop in real quick, Scott, when you talk about, did he really believe it? Uh, he 100% knew what he was doing. He had two companies that he had founded on the side uh, to give a one-time shot to replace the MMR vaccine. He was trying to specifically attack the MMR vaccine that was cut because he actually, what's frustrating is he went down a, he went down a legitimate path to start, right? There is, there is some sort of link between those people who have autism, who also have uh, Crohn's or intestinal disorders that there, there tends to be, a lot of people who have autism have intestinal disorder. So that's the link that he's going down investigating. He claims that he found like 12 patients that, you know, he did the study on. And, you know, as you mentioned, the Lancet comes out and disproves the study because it didn't actually happen. But in actuality, he had two companies that he was trying to bring to fruition based off of the lies that he was telling about those companies. So, yes, he really did know what he was doing. Well, he knew he was, uh, I guess what I'm saying is, I, you know, he knew what he was doing. But then again, you know, some people have a knack for convincing themselves that they're, you know, on the side of the angels, even when they're using improper means. Like, you know, if you honestly believed that the vaccine caused autism, you know, you could, I guess, you know, convince yourself of anything, really, what you're doing. Um, now, the problem is... He's a serial killer. Right, but that's the that's how serial killers think too. They they right. have that ability to just turn their mind into like convincing themselves of, of this is the reality that I live in, and so. And the but the problem is with the whole idea of trust the science because that's you know that's what people say trust the science. I, I think you know I think you want to pull the the out of there, and just say trust science. Because what happens with science is, is that whenever we figure out that something is wrong, we update, we fix, we improve. And so, and I think what people get caught up with is, oh, they were wrong back in 1984. Well, it's not 1984 anymore. It's, you know, 2023. So, you know, the scientists, they're the ones who are doing, you know, the ones at least who are not uh, falsifying the research. They're the ones who are, you know, doing the, you know, double blind studies. They're the ones who you know, are, are going through, you know, with, with pharmaceuticals, 10 to 15 years of study on a drug. They're not looking at a YouTube channel, you know, some jackass at a, you know, stop and go saying, oh, I heard it was doing, you know, I heard it, it major, you know, blue, you know, like Nicki Minaj and all that, you know, just nonsense. But 
Yeah, what, what frustrates me, and I think frustrates, you know, particularly, I think, the scientific community is whenever you have an Andrew Wakefield who has been disproven, has been discredited, has been, you know, just completely, you know, lambasted and, and is allowed nowhere near the scientific community anymore. Yet people are still holding on to that vaccines cause autism. Because what I can tell you is that working in schools, we are finding that more kids are autistic now than what we thought. Now, could there be a biological you know, cause for that? Maybe. But I think it's more likely is that people in the past had it and were not diagnosed. Uh, particularly now because the, the DSM, uh, when they moved to the DSM-5 and the DSM-4, they removed uh, Asperger's. And so now it's all part of the spectrum. And so people who had Asperger's, uh, that was a very mild form of autism, uh, where people who you know have average to you know exceptional intelligence, and at first glance could seem like you know they're just maybe just an odd person, but definitely not on the spectrum. Now they're on the spectrum, so we're seeing more people diagnosed, and I think that's the kind of key is that. It's not the cause of anything. It's just we're getting smarter about how we're doing this. And I think, and I think what what people like Doctor Wakefield, not even got Andrew Wakefield, former doctor, uh, take advantage of is is that parents' grief, right, or that sense of did I do something to cause this? Is, is this my fault? Is it my genetics? Because, like you said, you know, maybe they were autistic and it wasn't caught. 20 years ago when we were in school or, or maybe not, we don't necessarily know what 100% causes that. But when you have a parent wondering, did I do something wrong? And then you're capitalizing on that. That's a problem because that's the easiest person to capitalize, right? A grieving parent. And so it's, it's exceptionally disgusting, you know, that this person still, they made money. They stood around as long as they did. But the reason they did, Scott, you mentioned YouTube, and it's it's a combination of YouTube and Facebook that really helped revive that hesitancy. And then in the COVID times, it was the Instagram, the TikTok, the influencers that really grew it. Because at first it was the conspiracy theorists, it was the mom groups on Facebook, it was more far left people than it was far right people a lot of times who were the anti-vax because it was the authoritarian government was making me do this right well now it's it's the far right fascists who don't want to do it because they say it's the communist dems who are making them take this you know where then the left that same the same shot is being forced on them by the by the authoritarian government um but it's it's changed, right? Because in now nowadays it's the the influencers, the the fitness activists, the Joe Rogan talking about the benefits of ivermectin, where it used to be, you know, the Alex Jones conspiracy theorists of the world on YouTube talking about they're really injecting God knows what into your body, and they're they're going to kill all people and turn us into cyborgs over the next twenty years. And it's it's just a fascinating when you extend this outward. Uh, because, you know, in addition to the vaccines, you know, think about what we've noticed, I think, on TV the last, you know, I would say 20 years. 
is that we've seen a huge increase in the number and amount of commercials that are advertising for pharmaceuticals. I mean, I, I've said this before on the show, but um, I have diabetes. Uh, fortunately, it's type two; it's not type one. Um, and I, I, I'm not on insulin, which is another good thing, uh, considering the cost of insulin. But it's funny; every advertisement that I see for a pill for diabetes is one that I cannot take uh, because it causes kidney damage. And so, but you get all these people are sitting there, you know, go tell your doctor that you need to take. And it says, you know what? I have a great idea. Let's go with the person that went through eight years of college plus another several years of residency. Let's let them decide what I should take. Let me go to them and say, hey, here, you know, here are my symptoms. What should I do? Let's let's do that instead of me sitting there going, because, you know, the, uh, the one I love is now with the one that's, you know, for COVID. If it's COVID, Paxlovid. And you're like, and you're like, like you, you know. Care. Like you care what brand of medicine that you get, right? Just give me the medicine. But, but we do, Scott. For some reason, we do care. Like people, do you remember like when you got the shot? Like if you went to different locations and people like, oh, did you get the Pfizer one? Or did you get the Moderna? What shot did you get? Like I, we're brand snobs in america even with our vaccinations and our medicine they want us to specifically go into our doctor and say can i please have percocet please because my back hurts or whatever you know whatever commercial it is they want you to go to your doctor and specifically ask for that brand so they get paid yeah so that's where uh, so here's my favorite one uh, from years ago and you this would have been from before you were born uh, there was a pill called Dream Away. And I want you to stop me when something doesn't make sense. Please. So what they said was, is that you keep your normal diet, you take this pill before you go to bed, and when you wake up, you'll be three to five pounds lighter. You're not stopping I know, I'm me. In. I, I'm, I'm still in. I'm ready. I'm enjoying, um, I'm enjoying the idea of what this pill creates. Well, if you understand biology, you understand, and I want you to weigh yourself tonight before you go to bed and weigh yourself tomorrow when you wake up, you're going to discover, wait a minute, I'm three to five pounds lighter, depending on you know the size of the body and you know your, your biological makeup and body so type. Pre or post uh, morning BM and P and everything too, when am I weighing myself there? That's true. That's true. You got a point there. Um, but the funny thing was, is that people kept thinking, okay, so I weigh 200 now. I take this pill tomorrow, I'll be 195. And then when I take it the next night, I'll be 190. And then when I, you know, you, Same your body. Three pounds every night. Yeah, like your said. body, yeah, your body gains that weight back over the course of the day. And so that pill did not stay on the market for very long. But the thing is, is that what they were doing is that these are like the Andrew Wakefields of the world where they are taking advantage of our relative lack of knowledge. And, and I include myself in this because I talked about how poor I am at biology. Um, and I, I've heard my parents describe this. Oh, it turns your fat into muscle. It's like, um, uh, no, I don't think that's how that works. 
Um, but and and I and, and I and I'm the biggest you know offender here is that you know I'll say stupid stuff, and I think my you know my wife will just slap me in the back of the head saying you're an idiot. Yeah, but if we don't you know if we don't study if we don't pay attention and we we don't become more intelligent about these things, then whatever we see on YouTube, whatever we see on Facebook, whatever we see on any other Instagram, Twitter, whatever is, you know, wherever you're looking, you're going to buy that stuff, you know, hook, line, and sinker. We're suckers for marketing, you know, as we are, as a society of people, I mean, you, they're, they're discovering Roman cities, Scots with, you know, essentially billboards, right? Like when they uncover, uh, what is it, Pompeii, I guess, as they still do some of the, you know, the uncovering of different parts of that city that was like perfectly, basically perfectly encapsulated in time, right? Because it was covered yeah. in lava. I mean, there's, there's, there's what bill, equates to billboards nowadays in, in the city um, for, for products, right? Like it's, just, we are, as a people, we like to be told subliminally what to do. We don't like to be directly told what to do. We like to be subliminally marketed to in the back of our mind that when we have a little extra cash, this is where we would like to spend it. Uh, or when we are in pain, this is the best medicine for it. Or, you know, and, and it's everything. It's, it's money rules this world, you know, as, as you really, there's a, a, I watched the wire not too long ago for the first time. Um, just such a phenomenal show if you've never seen it. But there's there's a phrase that they use numerous times. It's follow the money. You know, if you follow the money, you're you're gonna but they when they say it, they're like, you know, are you ready for this? Because when you follow the money, you're gonna find some things that you weren't necessarily necessarily looking for, and they're not gonna be good things. And and when you follow the advertising money in the United States and see some of the things that are being pushed upon us whether it be prescription drugs to the point where it causes an epidemic of overdoses in this country. Um, you know, those are not good things. And when you look at, as you mentioned, diet pills, some of those, those crazy, uh, what, what was the belt back in the fifties or sixties that people used to just like, it would just shake your, shake your stomach the whole time while it was going and claim that it would make you lose weight. I mean, advertising rules this country it always has. It's it's always going to find a way to leak into every crevice of the world. Um, and quite frankly, it's the reason that enough people eventually enough people went and got vaccinated that they opened the world back up. You know, they, they found some sort of advertising campaign, whether it be through social media influencers or politicians or commercials that they run on TV. They ran a campaign for vaccination. Yeah, and that's where I think um, the sad thing is that it has gotten political, more political now than it, what it was. I mean, we, we just described to you how there, there were people on the left, there were people, you know, because, you know, what, what the saddest thing in the world to me is watching people suggest that Dr. Fauci should be in jail. It's like, for what? You know, all he's done is, is have a, you know, Quite literally, a fifty-year career working for multiple administrations—you know, Republican and Democrat administrations—to do the best that he can to keep us safe from ep epidemics and pandemics. That's what he does. And this is where I think 
we need to be more discerning because at first glance, you're going to look at Rand Paul and you're going to go like, well, he's a doctor, right? Yeah. Uh, he's not, you know, he kind of created his own license for his, you know, uh, he's an eye doctor for those of y'all don't know. And it's like, okay, so if I want to talk to somebody about cataracts, yeah, Rand Paul might be a good guy to talk to about cataracts. If I want to talk to somebody about preventing epidemics and pandemics, I would think I would rather talk to Dr. Fauci. Now, does this mean that Dr. Fauci is right 100% of the time? Of course not. But the thing is, is that's where I say, take the, the the out of it and say, trust science. The scientific process means that we're going to give you the best, the science is going to give you the best information they have right now. Doesn't mean in, you know, a week, month, year that we might learn something different. But instead of asking the person who knows the most about it right now, we're going to trust, you know, I don't know, Jethro down at the Stop and Sock who put, you know, loaded up a video on the YouTube. It's nuts. And what's tough too about trusting science specifically, Scott, right, is science is not anecdotal. There are always going to be anecdotal abnormalities when things like this happen. There are going to be people who have a bad reaction to the vaccine. There are going to be people who are unvaccinated, who walk into a room full of infected COVID patients and walk out without catching COVID. But those are anecdotal abnormalities. When you're in the position of someone like Dr. Fauci or any scientist specifically, like we'll have on next week, um, you are to trust the numbers and you have to go by what's the best option for the most people. And I think what's what's most hurtful about those who've attacked Fauci is he's not been in an easy position. It's when you're when you're in charge of predicting pandemics and and, you know, in this worst case scenario with COVID, right, having to be in charge of an active pandemic, you're having to make real time decisions that are going to affect the lives of millions of people. People are going to die, period, no matter what decision you make. So your decision now is how can I save as many lives as possible? And that's what doctors do, right? They hit a point in critical care where I have to save as many lives as I can. What decisions can I be made in this moment with the knowledge I have right now to save lives? And I feel like he went in day in and day out with the knowledge he had at that moment. And he made different decisions as the time went on. But part of being a scientist or a man of science is to when you're running data to take that data and alter your decision based on it. And, and that's what science is. And that's what he did. And that's what, you know, our history of vaccines have done. We've gotten better at um, making vaccines after having data on how vaccines work over a history of time. And I'm, you know, not to kind of just like wrap it all up, but, you know, kind of, just, I'm really excited for next week to, to be able to talk about some of the, the science that goes into making these vaccines nowadays because mm uh uh mra technology is fascinating it is unbelievably fascinating how how vaccines can be made how quickly you can be made and what the what the future of medication could possibly be in this country 
if we are able to expand on MR, uh, mRNA technology. Yeah, and I think we're, we're, we are kind of easing towards our, our favorite part. And I think our favorite part of the week might take a little longer this week, folks, you know, because I think there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, basically, to wrap all this up, when we look at particularly the COVID vaccine specifically, is I think there are, there are legitimate areas of concern. Um, and then I think if you look throughout the history of vaccines, we obviously there are legitimate areas of concern. But then there are just absolutely brainless, stupid areas of concern. And what we want to do is we want to distill that out. We want to sit there and say, well, how do we ask the right kinds of questions? Because that's what we're going to do. I'm not going to tell you what's stupid, what's not stupid, because I'm not a biologist. What I will tell you is we're going to ask and we're going to see, hey, what's a legitimate area of concern here? You know, and then what should we just like dismiss out of hand that this is dumb? And I think you know, that's what we're going to get to next week. And I real quick before we totally move on, I want to throw one thought to you because as you said, there are some areas of concern. It's a newer vaccine. We're the first generations of Americans to be exposed to this vaccination. So, you know, for example, when I had my third dose of it, I had, you know, a night, I think, a lot of people on Twitter exaggerated it with what they called the shakes, right? Where I, I would call it chills, right? Where involuntarily my body maybe four or five times for 30 seconds kind of shook. I have a general care physician who I have a, a good enough relationship with where I can call their office, ask a quick question, get my medical question answered. No big deal. So that's what happened. Hey, I, I got this vaccine. Here's what happened. Hey, don't worry. That's what this is. It's, you know, it's like when you got the, it's like when you got the flu and you get those chills, that's all that it is. Okay, cool. I feel good. There's not a lot of, and then we're in a world where not a lot of people have that relationship with a, a physician. And that's, it goes back to the way that healthcare is, is set up in this country. But if, if you're already hesitant about the vaccine and then you see some idiots on Twitter talking about the shakes or whatever it is, you know, if you don't have the ability to, to call a physician you know, if you don't have a general practitioner, like even my wife, my wife doesn't have a, a general practitioner. She goes to the lady doctor and all her special, like I've been telling her for years, you need a, you need a family general practitioner. And I, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I, I have one and you're able to ask those questions. That's, that's what they're there for. Um, you know, and, and it would, but unfortunately, Scott, just the way that our, our medical system is set up, people aren't willing to pay that copay to go have their, their yearly checkup or to go get things looked at because it's, it's too expensive in some scenarios. And I don't need a general practitioner. I only go to the doctor when I need to go to the doctor. I don't do preventative care. And so they just don't have that person that they can call or even that often that doctor's office that they can call, you know, to me, the, the healthcare industry is, is part of the problem with some of the current, um, when you say, the realistic issues of the vaccine or side effects of the vaccine. If people had relationships with their doctor's offices, like in some other countries that have socialized health care, where you, you go to the doctor for preventative care, you could call and get that question answered. But if you don't do that and you don't have that knowledge relationship that I can call my doctor and get this question answered, it, it, it stands as a roadblock instead of just a, a quick little hurdle. Right. Uh my own story on this regard, you know, just to, mine was the second shot, but I didn't have the shakes, but 
one of the things that happened within the last year is I, I get blood drawn about every three or four months because um, they want to test my sugars. They want to do, you know, see all that. Well, I had an iron deficiency. So my, um, you know, my diabetes doctor hooked me up with an oncologist. Now, do you know what an oncologist does? Uh, it's a cancer doctor. Yep. I made the mistake of looking that up. And so, you know, and it's one of those things where you don't meet with them. Like, you can't get an immediate appointment. And so I'm sitting there stewing for like a good six weeks going, oh, crap, do I have cancer? And so I'm looking up, you know, I'm looking up on WebMD, which is the biggest mistake anybody can make. Look up one day, okay, I have anemia, okay, what cancers are, and you'll see, oh, it's leukemia. It's like, oh, crap. It ended up being not any of those things. But that's, you know, WebMD, I guarantee it, if you look up anything on WebMD, you know, even if you have, like, say, diarrhea, they'll tell you that you have anal cancer. It's like, wait, what? what? You know, it's that that's their answer for everything. You have cancer. And, and that, but that's the crazy thing when people, you know, do, do your own research. No, let's not do your own research. You know, call your doctor, like Tim was saying, um, you know, ask a quick question. It's, it's better than, you know, stewing in your own kind of, you know, whatever that is. Long story short, really too, if you have a medical question, don't go to Twitter. Don't, that, that's, that's not the place to take your medical question is to Twitter. Yeah, or Dr. Oz. If, if you have a question about open heart surgery, specifically, oddly enough, Scott, Dr. Oz is a phenomenal person to ask that question to. And it, it's He's such a frustrating person for me because if he, and I hate the term, but like if he would have stayed in his lane, right, he would be saving life after life. He, you know, he has patents that are still used today in open heart surgery. He was a phenomenal open heart surgeon. He is now a terrible human being who has helped way too many people get a platform on national television to talk about nonsense, non-medical things. But because it's hosted on Dr. Oz, people assume it's actually going to help them out. He's such a such a giant scumbag. But, but he's not he's not this week's scumbag. Right. That's a great segue. Okay, Tim, uh, I'll let you go first this week. Who do you got? This one's going to be really hard, Scott, because I don't think you can just label one person as a scumbag in this scenario. Um, we're recording this on, on Tuesday the 27th, and sadly enough, there was, there was another um, school shooting today in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, it's, it's awful, absolutely awful that this is happening again and it's awful the reaction that we get because it's it's disgusting you know people talk about this as politicizing a tragedy this is you know you hear that same argument played out but then you see that well they got in through the side door i thought we had talked about being better about locking down schools and then the per the people who have leaked out that this was a non-bearing this was a you know a a a man that identified or a female that identified as a man. Uh, we told you that trans people were coming to kill us, you know, and, and this is, it's all a disgusting rhetoric 
And it's to go away from the fact that there's one legitimate solution to this problem, right? All these people claim to be pro-life. Every Republican out there claims to be pro-life. But the congressman for the district in Nashville that this school was in posed in front of their Christmas tree with a with their whole family holding assault weapons. Three children hold no two children holding guns and the youngest one holding a sign that said Merry Christmas. Him and his wife both holding uh, her purple camo, his regular camo, specialized weapons. Merry Christmas. But this is the guy who's now putting out thoughts and prayers for those parents. And and when I look at scumbag of the week, you know, obviously someone who goes into the school and does something like this is is not a good person. But someone who sits there, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, is shows up to that site while all of this is happening and gets in the way of, of the ATF and the people that are there trying to investigate the scene, who's trying to you know make sure the cameras catch her talking about how this was an inside job or make sure you get it right. or She had no business being there in the first place, but here she is now politicizing it. You have... Fox News going live right outside the show and the most fantastic in the, you know, and in the heat of it moment, a mom steps up after the police get done talking, a mom grabs the microphone and says, how many more times does this have to happen? And as she's giving an impassioned speech, you see the Fox News reporter waving to the cameraman to don't point the camera at her. And the camera just points up to the sky and you can't see the lady giving the speech anymore because they don't want you to care about making the one thing that would actually change this change. And that's gun control. You know, those are the people that like this congressman, those are the scumbags this week, the ones that continue to take the NRA money to continue to fight restricting some of the type of weapons that are for sale in, in this country. And then will be the first ones to hop on a plane, stand outside that school, and make asses of themselves for the good of their electorate to say, we protect your Second Amendment rights. This was this was because trans people are attacking Americans. Wasn't it true that they're trans? It's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. My scumbags this week are those people who are talking about anything other than, let's change these laws. Let's please make a change because it's too much. It's absolutely too much. Scott, you work in a school. My wife is in a school. I have a nine-year-old daughter. You have a daughter. It's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, the people who do anything other than get guns off the street in a way that is safe is, and to blame this on anything other than that, you're a giant scumbag. You, and that's, that. to me, that's who it is this week, Scott. Okay, everybody, if you listened to our last week's episode, you heard me yell last week. So I'm going to try very hard to keep this keep this under wraps. So Uvalde happened towards the end of the school year last year. Um, in fact, it's the last week of school. The day after it happens, my, uh, my daughter texts my wife and I, there's a guy with a gun in the school, but I'm hiding in the chemistry closet. I'm okay. 
the only thing that protected the people in the school that day was that he forgot the bullets. That's what, that's what protected. They were, you know, my, my daughter was hiding in a chemistry closet and they were holding stuff that were, you know, ready, prepared to throw it at him if he, you know, came over there. And so, you know, and, and you'd have no idea that was the worst 10 or 15 minutes that I've ever experienced between her texting us and the school and, and Clear Creek does a great job. They do an absolutely fantastic job of keeping parents informed. You know, when they when it was safe, they they got out the message completely. Okay, you know, the situation's under control. You don't have to worry. If you'd like to pick up your child, you can pick up your child. But you know, everything's under control. I mean, she went through last year. You know that threat at the end of the school year. They had two different bomb threats earlier in the school year. And and, I, and my Columbine, the year that happened, that was my second year of teaching. Um, I was in Pasadena. Columbine happened on April 20th. So you know, keep this in mind. There were three bomb threats at our school in between April 20th and the end of the school year. And, you know, one of them was hilarious. One of them, somebody came by. You know, they're going to send the teachers in to look for the bomb. It's like, the hell you are. <laughs> I'm not looking for a damn bomb. Cut the red wire. Oh! <laughs> but in all didn't, seriousness. Didn't read your job description no. very well, did you? So, no. History don't teacher, volleyball coach, bomb detonator. Yeah, I, I don't think that was in the contract. I, maybe in the very, very small print. But and I, and I make light of it. Because I don't want to yell at the screen, but, but basically what happens is, is that not only you know is Tim right about what we need to do, but the thing is, is in, in you can hear it. It's going we're going to go through the same cycle every time. You can't politicize this event; it's too soon. So, can I politicize Santa Fe now? Can we politicize Uvalde? You know that that's you know year you know years ago for Santa Fe, you know last year for Uvalde. But the thing is, is that these events perpetuate themselves because you have people that think, you know, and, and, and I don't know exactly what goes through their brain, but they think like, this is a way to get my name out there. And, oh, what a good idea. I never thought of doing that. And that's why you see these things happen, you know, compound. They just, they perpetuate themselves, you know, and, and part of it is that we shouldn't glorify you know, the shooter, because everybody wants to know what happened with the shooter. You know, was the shooter bullied? I don't give a shit. Whenever you come in, you kill multiple people. I don't give a shit what happened to you. You, you don't matter anymore. If you're, if you're somebody going through the bullying process and you're upset about it, I definitely care about that. But the moment you decide to pick up a semi-automatic weapon and take it into a school and shoot a bunch of people, no, done. I'm not, you know, I don't care. I'm with you on that sense. I, I do want to know what happened from a, from a case study, I guess, Scott, as far as preventing this yeah, from happening I mean, again. I'd like to know, you know, why. I do want to know why on that sense. What brought you to that point where you... You, you felt that this was the only thing you could do. You know, this was the only way you could live life as if you did this. You know, I, I would like to know why from that, but I do agree with you in terms of like, there's no, there's no defense in court that's going to go with along with that. I just want to know to prevent it from happening again. 
what can we have done to prevent this from happening at least this time or in the future? Yeah, the Newtown one is the one that kind of, you know, in addition to, you know, Alex Jones, if we've gotten into before, but I'm not going to address him now because, again, I don't want to yell. Um, what really hurt about that was that people turned around and blamed the mom who also got shot because she introduced her son to, uh, to guns because her son was autistic and she was struggling. And she was asking everybody for help. I mean, she was, you know, sending letters and in contacts to everybody but Santa Claus, asking, please help me. I don't know what to do. Nobody helped her. She tried to connect with her gun, uh, her son anyway. See a Freudian slip there where I said connect with her gun. She tried to connect with her son any way she could. Said, hey, maybe we can go, go take him shooting. Maybe he seems to be interested in guns. Maybe that'll, that'll do it. And so instead of blaming the system that allows us to have some amount of weapons in the first place, which nobody should have, we're going to blame the mother. Well, she should have done more. Well, number one, she's dead. She paid the ultimate price. So let's leave her alone. Number two, she asked for help beforehand. It's not like we, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. Yeah, you did. She kept asking for help. And, and number three, I mean, how does he legally get a gun? How do any of these people, you know, legally get a gun? I mean, ninety, you know, nine times out of ten, these shootings are occurred when somebody illegally, legally obtains a firearm. And so that's where we got to, you know, if you tell me, hey, they got it on a black market, and that is, okay, okay, right. But if you're going to sit there and tell me he went to Walmart and bought the gun, it's like, damn it. What are we doing? I'm with you, Scott. I'm with you. And I, I think at some point, you know, when well, my friend and I were talking about it, you know, there's got to be the same penalty needs to apply to the owner of the gun too, right? Like if you take your, if you take your parents' gun and go to school and do that thing, you know, your, your parents would be just as liable because they let you have access to that weapon in some way. They didn't lock it up. They didn't do what they should have done to be safe gun owners. But again, at the same time, it shouldn't, they shouldn't own that gun. And, and, and that's something that it, it gets political at that point. People like to get defensive over. It's my right as an American to own this weapon. You know, I, you, then you've got the preppers with you know, zombie apocalypse or whatever it is. Right. But there's so many, people who will who will literally physically fight over their their second amendment quote unquote rights that this has been going on for like 10 years consistently and it's crazy that the, the school shootings have been a consistent part of american life for 10 years now and it's just america this is not happening anywhere else this is happening only in america for a I don't want to drop the F word for a decade for a decade. And we've done nothing, but, you know, put a couple more officers in schools after the Uvalde shooting. I got an email from my daughter's school asking if more dads want to just stand outside the school on pickup day to make people feel safer. What am I, what am I, what am I going to do? An unarmed me? Like, I don't know. You're going to see me Costanza-ing? Like, Pushing kids out of the way as I run, like what I, 
I mean, honestly, like, what am I going to do? Like, I am, you, you, we spend all this money on police training and militarizing the police, and they want me, part of the watchdog group, to come hang out in front of the school. Like, and even then, I don't want to, I don't want to tank in front of the school, but like, again, why are, why are we asking for volunteer dads to just stand there, arms crossed and sunglasses? Like, what in the world am I here for? Yeah, I think we'll have to address gun control in a future episode. We definitely will do that. And, I think um, I think Scott, after we finish the vaccine, our our next Tuesday two parters should be on. Um, we'll do like the history of firearms and how they have grown, because technology has changed immensely on them, and that's you know what what our forefathers fought um, with is nowhere near what we have available. So I think it'd be interesting to see the history of firearm technology and then the history of, um, you know, American politicization of gun ownership. Uh, musket talk. That's going to sound like a blast. Um, so we go to my scumbags and my scumbag is going to be a, a collective group this week. So, you know, I haven't really been watching the news. Did Donald Trump get indicted today? Today again, I'm sorry. Did Donald Trump get indicted today? No, they had. Jeez, a, they actually I, did have a. They had a grand jury testimony today, though. Oh, geez, I'm shocked. So my my scumbags are essentially the mainstream media, and I and I don't know if you, um, when you were younger, if you read the Peanuts cartoons, they were Charlie Brown, and so you know, there's the famous, you know, the famous one that keeps re, being redone. Lucy Van Pelt is is holding the football, saying like, "Oh, come on, Charlie Brown, come kick the football." And, you know, he says, no, you're just going to yank it up. And he says, like, you do every time. No, 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 I'm not, not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And she convinces him, and he just runs full bore, and he swings in his foot, and he's just, she lifts up the football, and he finds, you know, lands deer on his backside, you know, embarrassed as usual. That's what the mainstream media keeps doing to us. Oh, Donald Trump's about to get indicted. No, he's not. He is not going to be indicted. Now, this is something where, you know, Tim, he got on his, you know, the high chair, almost yelled last week, um, where he wanted at least one billionaire to be held accountable for something. Remember, you said that. I will say that to my dying breath, Scott. I will, I, if, if, so, if I have enough money in my death fund, I'm going to ask specifically on my tombstone for it to say hold billionaires accountable. Well, and see, this is what kills me about the press, because we could frame this issue easily and get probably more universal agreement than we ever did. And that I think most people would agree with him is that, you know, there are some billionaire scumbags and we'd like at least one to be held accountable for something. Donald Trump has been living a life of crime for over 50 years. Over 50 years. We talked about last week how, you know, the, the, the Nixon administration said that they were racist and who they were allowing to live, you know, in their apartment building. 1973, the Nixon administration. This is, I mean, I was born in 1973, Tim. And so what kills me is that he has never been held responsible for anything at any point. I mean, he's been sued over a hundred times and he pays little pittance here and there, but you know, it's never enough to cripple or anything like that. 
And so, you know, what you have is you have, you know, now we have Georgia. We've got the state of New York. We've got the federal justice department. Um, and, and who else? I mean, they, they, the state of New York's also done, you know, his, his university, which was proven to be a fraud, and, and his charity, which was proven to be a fraud. Has he served a day in jail? No. Is he going to? No. And if we look at Texas, Ken Paxton has been under indictment every single day that he's been an attorney general. Every single day he's been under indictment. Is he ever going to go to trial? No. He's not going to go to trial. Okay, and so mainstream media stopped telling me, oh, is he going to be indicted today? No. He is not going to be indicted today. We'll find a reason not to do it. Now, what you could do is you, you could, you know, just casually tell us he's committed this crime, which normally would get you X days in jail. But because, you know, he's rich, he's powerful, He's got, you know, influence. He's not going to go to jail. But you know what? If you or I committed even one-tenth of what he's done, we'd be in jail for the rest of our lives. Our lives would be ruined. Even if you, and, and that's what the, the funny thing is, is that if you threw us in jail for one year, we're done professionally. I'm not teaching again. Nobody's going to hire Tim as a broadcaster if he spends a year in jail for whatever. But, you know, here are these billionaires who we can't even find a way to get them in jail for a year when they have the financial wherewithal or it's not going to hurt them one iota. Now, mainstream media, if you focused on the fact that we have a two-tier justice system where if you have money and you have influence, you're not getting punished, and if you're just a regular Joe, you're not getting out of it. I think more people would, would gravitate to that framing than simply saying, well, Biden's committed all these crimes. He's not going to jail. And of course he's not because he's also rich. He also has influence. He's not a billionaire, but he's rich and he has influence. And, you know, is he twisting arms and getting people not to throw his son in jail? Maybe. Maybe not. But see, that's the difference. And, and, and what kills me, and, 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 I, and normally I would make Trump my scumbag, but to me, he has to elevate himself to be a scumbag. Uh, the makers of South Park, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, uh, when they did an interview early on in the process, they said that Eric Cartman represented the junk in everyone's soul. So Eric Cartman was, isn't even a real I mean, it's not a real character. He's just, you know, this evil that they can manifest, you know, in their show that, in, in a comical way. Trump's kind of the same. He's a cartoon character. He's he, he's an unintelligent Bond villain. And he's not, he's not worthy to be called a scumbag. But basically, he does all these things because he knows he's never going to get caught. So what does he do? He has a picture of himself holding a bat next to a picture of the district attorney. He's committed four crimes just with that one picture alone. So I just, you know, mainstream media, stop trying to tease us. He's not getting indicted. It's not happening. And that's all that we're going to have to do with that. All right. So I have, I sent you one 
earlier with uh, our fan favorite Lauren Boebert. And I'll start with that one. This is a classic from LB. Biden's ATF rule banning pistol braces is extremely dangerous. It's causing millions of boating accidents nationwide. Now, I've got a couple more I want to get to, Scott, but I just want a little quick pause. A little quick pause on Lauren here. What, 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 what are you doing with your boat and your gun at the same time that you can no longer safely drive said boat safely, again, safely, without a pistol brace? I'm, I'm severely confused. I think what confuses me most about her and our, you know, our good friend Marjorie Taylor Green is that I, I, I don't know who their math teachers were, but I have to imagine that they were that they're cringing, you know, somewhere. Because she said millions of those accidents, right? Millions. Millions of boating accidents. So that means, what are millions of people doing with their pistols on boats? Well, you know, there are, there's not even 350 million Americans. I don't know. And, and I don't know. Do you own a boat? No. I don't either. So, you know, I, how I many... think this means, I think this is not several separate boat owners. I think you can infer a little bit that the, some of the same Americans are having continual boating accidents because of this rule. Well, it, it would not be in the same accident, right? Because I can only drive one boat at once. This is that, yeah, is that one accident, or if like three, if three now braceless gun owners have a boating accident with each other, does that count for three instances by her counting, or is that just one instance? Well, you know, there was an SNL sketch, and this was back, you know, this is post John Belushi, but when his brother Jim Belushi was on the show, and they made fun of the fact that you know there's always those stats that you know somebody in New York gets mugged every you know thirty seconds. And so they had it be the same guy. <laughs> so Jim Belushi, I mean, everybody's descending on him. Every 30 seconds, he's getting mugged by somebody, getting beat up. And it's like, yeah, it must be that. It's like, you know, maybe it's the same guy that owns a million boats. And he's just wrecking it every day consecutively. Oh, that, that boat's gone. Let me, let me get another boat. Uh, because, you know, he's got to have his, his brace on the, on the boat. It's just hilarious. Tweet number two, Ronnie Boyd DeSantis. The Cuban government tried to use the World Baseball Championship for propaganda. They still lost 14-2 to to the USA. Freedom wins again. Couple thoughts here. It's the World Baseball Classic, not the World Baseball Championship. And I don't remember Cuba trying to make any statement about anything other than Here's our baseball team. I I didn't hear anything from the Cuban government during the WBC. Did, did you, Scott? Does Cuba even have a government still? I mean, I know the Castro brothers are dead. I, I you know, there's got to be someone in charge down there. Does there really? You know, maybe it's that guy with the boat with the brace on it. You know, he's wrecking. You know, definitely didn't <laughs> see any. Definitely didn't see any government-sponsored propaganda in that time period. But well, apparently, according to Ron, they had it. Oh, and you know, and I wish mine, and I sent this to you, and I was looking it up because I wanted to read it word for word, and here's what it tell, says. 
you are unable to view this tweet because this account owner limits who can view their tweets. So apparently he got trashed way too much. He got ratioed, as we like to call in the Twitter business. But basically what this guy said was, the Democrats are way too extreme. It's only the Republican Party who are reaching out to moderates. I, saw, I remember you sent me that one. So, okay. Now, is the Democratic Party getting too extreme? I guess, you know, depending on where you are, you find yourself on the political spectrum. You know, I guess you could argue that. Maybe. But to sit there and argue, okay, so let's remember uh, Dick Cheney, who I want, you know, I want his life. I want to be able to have a hunting accident where I shoot somebody in the face and have the guy I shoot in the face apologize for it happening. That's, that's the life I want. His daughter, Liz Cheney, absolutely probably, you know, 10 years ago, would have been the most conservative person in Congress by a long shot. She's not welcome in the Republican Party anymore. Adam Kinzinger, who is, you know, I don't know that he's nuts, but he's not allowed the Republican Party anymore. Jeff Flake from Arizona, uh, Arizona, another guy who's really conservative, he's not allowed. It, 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 we could we could just go through and we could you know go politician after politician politician. Now is it true? I, Donald Trump doesn't have an ideology. Hell, he doesn't have you know he doesn't have any firm opinions. The only firm opinion he has is what's best for Donald Trump. But the whole thing is is that you got to show fealty to Donald Trump or you're out of the Republican Party. I don't see how anybody could claim that they're reaching out to anybody. When you have all these people who are conservative firebrands, who all they did was sit there and go like, you know, this January 6th thing, it's not right. Now they're out of Republican Party. Yet they're the one reaching out to moderates. Are you buying that? I'm not. Not buying it. Here's another one for you, Scott. Steve Kirsch, uh, in a previous tweet before the one I grabbed, was complaining that uh, there's a, a woman on the plane next to him who was still wearing her mask, as you know, plenty of people still do on planes because it's all recycled air. Uh, and he started asking her all the questions of the efficacy of her mask, and she got a little annoyed and didn't like it, told him to go to hell. So now he posted a new picture of himself about to board another flight. Uh, this was on March 22nd. I'm in seat 4A on the United flight to Atlanta, boarding in five minutes. Maybe I'll have better luck with my mask question on this flight. Fingers crossed. Probably not. People don't like to be badgered by random people that they don't know about their decision to wear a mask on a flight. Most times when the person's badgering them is a right-wing asshole wondering why they have a mask on and they're being an asshole about the fact that that person has a mask on. So I got that one and then one, a couple, yeah, two more good ones, Scott. I'm sorry. It's been, it's been a great week for Republican stupidity. Um, this weekend and you're, oh, no, you're, you're not a Baylor guy at, at no. Waco, uh, at Waco, there was a, a Trump rally this weekend, right? Yes. And, um, hopping up to speak at the rally was the Texas agricultural commissioner, Sid Miller. Oh, no. At what was a video of it. But during this speech, he basically says like, it used to be 
uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans. Then it was conservatives versus liberals. Well, you know what? Now it's patriots versus traitors, and I'm a patriot. Like, oh my God. The fact that Republicans at this point have just declared like war and called every non-Republican a traitor to the country is both one of the just most asinine things I've ever seen. Brilliant marketing campaign, but also absolutely disgusting. One of the things I noticed, and I, I went out to you know, work out with my trainer today, and uh, one of the things I noticed is that there are a few people in the gym who they have to wear a Trump t-shirt every time they go into the gym. And I was like, I was sitting there thinking, and it's not, you know, it's not really being a fan of Trump, you know, that kind of gets me, although that, that is bad enough. Have you ever purchased a shirt for a political candidate? No. I haven't either. I've never put a political bumper sticker on Because we're not patriots, obviously. I've never put a political bumper sticker on my car. Haven't done it. Haven't done it. Now, part of it is that I'm in education. And so um, my wife, you know, works for, you know, she's officially a a contractor, but she works at a, you know, government agency. So, you know, it's probably best that we don't do that. I've also, though, I've never felt so motivated by something that I need every other person to know that's me, right? Well, I put an Astros bumper sticker on one car when I first started driving, and it got so beat up in the sun so quickly, I was like, okay, this is clearly a waste of time. But I have never felt like I am so passionate about this issue that I need to I need to put a sticker on my car and make sure other people can learn more about this issue or see that I'm that they can see that I'm also passionate and honk at me. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, you know, what killed me? We were driving, you know, just on the road the other day, and we saw, you know, a big truck. It has a "Let's Go Brandon," which I'm sure, if you haven't heard, that's uh, everyone's that's, heard. Yeah, is not you know that's not what they were saying. So he's got a "Let's Go Brandon" sticker, and he's got an American flag. Flying in, you know, his truck, which probably should have been burned about ten years ago. And one of the things is that when uh, and my daughter's in Girl Scouts, she doesn't do a whole lot with it now. But you know, before you know, one of the things they learned was flag etiquette. And you flag know, when, code. there's flag. There's a flag yeah, code. Exactly. And when you get to when a flag gets to a point where it's in disrepair. It is disrespectful to continue flying that flag. Right. You need to, you need to, you need to destroy it. And there's a, you know, a specific way you have to do it. But the best, the best way to do it is donate to a Boy Scout troop who will do it for you properly. Well, right, yeah, yeah, that's uh, fair enough. But the point is, is that so you know you so love this country that you know you've got your let's go, Brandon. So we know where you stand. But you're going to disrespect the flag that you say that you love to the point where you're going to let it get into that condition. I mean, it's yeah. just it's just absolutely mind-boggling. When I worked for the baseball team, the, the GM previous to date was, was pretty conservative. And, uh, you know, flag flying, all that stuff. It's pouring rain outside. I said, hey, what are you going to do about the flag? What are you talking about? Like, well, it's raining. Do you either have... A, a spotlight, or B, a plan to take the flag down. Because according to the flag code, those are your two choices. 
There's no such thing as a flag code. I'm like, yep, yeah, yeah, big cat. Hit Google flag code right now and look it up. There are rules for flying old glory up there. You can't just slap it up and call it a day. Like, realistically, it, it, there's uh, 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 how tall your pole can be based on on how big the flag is, when to, li- when to light it versus when to take it down, rules for rain, rules for wear, rules for disposal. There's a whole, there's a whole, as we say, code for uh, for flying your flag. But well, that's where uh, I choose. You know, I don't know about you, but I choose where I buy my car based on who has the biggest flag. Because you know, those are the people that love America. I'm going to give a free plug here because I've I've only bought a car from one place, and I will only buy a car from one place. That's Norman Frady Chevrolet uh, in Clear Lake, Texas. Joan McKinney, uh. will take it. Joan McKinney will take phenomenal care of you. I, my sister-in-law drove all the way from Dallas, uh, north of Dallas, down to Clear Lake to get a car from Norman Frady because uh, they, they, they don't rip people off. So um, I, I go to Norman Frady is the only place I go. I did not get mine, but I got a Jeep, so I couldn't go to Norman Frady for a Jeep. But um, I was pretty Fair happy. enough, Scott. I was happy with the experience. So I went to Bayway, you know, off of 225, so... Um, between myself, my mom, and my dad, I think we're at seven different Norman Frady vehicles. Um, we've we've always gone there. Take good care. Of, they take good care of the community. Yeah, that that's they're they're the only ones because I remember there was a Ford dealership across the street from them that now it's turned into a, um, a storage unit. You know? Yeah. So, but Scott, we got a big show lined up for uh, our Thursday show this week. Uh, Sean Bajani of uh, Houston Sports Talk fame uh, is joining us. It's going to be really exciting to talk a little um, preseason predictions for baseball. His opening day is, is slowly creeping up upon us. I saw a tweet on the weekend that said, this is your last weekend without baseball for seven months. And it's like this, this sense of warmth just comes over you. And you just it's like you just got a big hug from the baseball gods. Or, We're here. It's time. Um, we'll talk Astros, we'll talk Rockets, uh, they've shown some heart here recently, um, if there's time, we'll, we'll talk about my broken heart from the Houston Cougars, but, um, a lot of, a lot of good stuff coming up tomorrow. I was, yeah, and I, I did have three fantasy baseball drafts this weekend, and if anybody's, you know, knows my history of fantasy sports, I will say that I am absolutely pleased I only have one Astro. Um, I have Kyle Tucker that was picked for me. One of the drafts I couldn't show up for because, you know, one of the things he's going to have such a good year. He's going to have, well, unfortunately, well, and one of the things I do before every draft, I say, okay, who wants the hex? Because I, I am like the hex on everybody. So that's why I draft. I try to draft zero Astros. Um, like you want Mike Trout to go down for the year. I'll take Trout. Um, I took, you know, a couple of years ago, it took Trevor Bauer, and you know he was clicking along, and all of a sudden gets arrested for rape. And it's like, oh, well, that's a new one, but these these things happen, I guess. It's going to be a great episode, Scott. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Really, really glad you were able to uh, get everybody in touch. We've got, I tell you, you know, Scott and I were talking, and we really enjoyed being able to bring some guests to the show, and it's something that we're going to continue to strive to do. Uh, I'm working hard to bring 
really, really special guest on the show uh, that I think a lot of our Houston fans would really enjoy. And then um, we're going to continue to bring to bring guests on the Tuesday show too. Like I said, next week we're going to have our uh, our guest on here to talk about some of the scientific developments and the history of some of the vaccine developments. And then uh, you know, if we can look around hard enough, maybe we'll be like the guys on Pawn Stars and come up with a friend who knows a lot about the history of guns and, and can help us uh, learn about the history of firearms here in America. Sounds like a winner. But Scott. As always, it's been a pleasure. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Hey, I am on the Twitter machine, at Sparzilla. I also write frequently for Battle Red Block for Houston Texans. And I have the occasional uh, article that I post up on my blog, thehalloffameindex.com. I am at Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. Be sure to like and follow our Facebook page, The Snaphook. The movement is growing on the Snapbook Facebook page. I'm going to start posting uh, some of the screenshots from tweet of, from our Tweets of the Week onto that Snaphook Facebook page so people can see that. Um, what do you guys think of the screenshot I took of, of Scott and I last week? One of, the, one of the poses for Scott, not so flattering. No. But no, no. Uh, it was not a great angle. But, uh, hey, well, you know, that's, that's the – live in the in the studio content that the people are looking for scott absolutely you know it's, it's our moment in the stocks as we discussed a few episodes ago but that's that's gonna do it for us here tonight um we look forward to being with everybody again tomorrow talk sports talk houston sports specifically uh with sean bajani but we are gonna call it here we appreciate everyone who joined us made us a part of your day and is joining part of that snap hook movement as we continue to move as many people as we can from right to left. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you for tuning into the snap hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. Wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Hook.